I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. The simple act of eating a hamburger is, when you really think about it, one of the great acts of human denial. Because what is a burger? It's edible protein in the shape of a disc. Every single time. And you can order it rare, you can order it well done, you can dress it up in ketchup, you can leave half of it behind. And never once have the thought cross your mind, I wonder what she looked like. The cow this burger came from. I wonder where she lived. I wonder how she died. Our thoughts just don't go there, which is fine if you believe that meat-eating is just nature's way. But what if you take the vegan or the vegetarian's view that eating meat is just wrong for your health, for your environment, for your soul? Well, that sounds like the dividing line in a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Don't eat anything with a face. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are here at the Kaufman Music Center in New York. We have four superbly qualified debaters who will argue for and against this motion, don't eat anything with a face. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then our live audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion is don't eat anything with a face. And let's meet the team arguing for that motion. First, let's welcome Dr. Neil Bernard. And Neil, you are president and founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. You study uh, the effects of diet on health. You do not eat meat now, but you come from a family of cattle ranchers in Fargo, North Dakota. So I'm wondering, do you, do you ever get the craving? You know, I have to tell you, it's like quitting smoking. Any moments of doubt you have as you're getting away from meat are quickly replaced by being very, very glad that you've broken a bad habit. <laughs> and your partner is? Uh, Gene Bauer. Ladies uh, and gentlemen. The president of Farm Sanctuary. Gene Bauer. Gene, you are also arguing for our motion, don't eat anything with a face. You are president of the Farm Sanctuary, as your partner just mentioned. That is an animal rescue and refuge organization that you co-founded in 1986. You have been a vegan for decades. And when we first got in touch with you, you were up in Lake Placid doing at the age of 50 an Ironman triathlon, which you said you were doing largely to prove that a plant-based diet could get you through 140 miles in the race. You did it under 12 hours. Congratulations. And uh, I just want to ask you, if you had had to narrow down your plant-based diet to just one vegetable to get you through that race, what would it have been? Got to go with the leafy greens. Kale is what it's about. (laughs) Kale. We will be handing out kale in the lobby after the debate. (laughs) Our motion is don't eat anything with a face. We have two debaters who are arguing against it first. Please, let's welcome Chris Masterjohn. Chris, you are a nutritional sciences researcher at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. You write two popular blogs, The Daily Lipid and Mother Nature Obeyed. And when we spoke to you a few months ago, you were taking salsa dance lessons. You're a competitive dancer. And we learned that your partner is a vegan. Whereas you are a guy who not only eats meat, but you also like to eat the bones, the skin, and the organs. So how does that dance partnership work out? Ballroom dancing, like any other partner dancing, is a form of communication, and no communication can be successful without mutual respect. So that's right. Thank you. Thank you, Chris Masterjohn. And Chris, your partner is? 
My partner is the nation's leading ethical, ecologically conscious, and health-conscious farmer. He is Joel Salatin. Ladies and gentlemen, Joel Salatin. Joel, you are also arguing against this motion, doting anything with the face. Uh, You are a third-generation alternative farmer. You are uh, a celebrity in this story uh, ever since being featured in Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivorous Dilemma, and then later in the documentary Food, Inc. So we know how you treat the cows and the chickens. The question is, how do the cows and chickens treat you? Well, they treat me like a servant. They wait for me to move them. They wait for me to feed them and water them and take care of them. And I love serving them. In fact, all my life, I have served them first before I eat breakfast. Thank you, Joel Salatin. And those are our four debaters, ladies and gentlemen. On to round one. Opening statements from each debater in turn. Our motion is this. Don't eat anything with a face. And here to speak first in support of this motion, Dr. Neil Bernard. He is an adjunct associate professor of medicine at George Washington University School of Medicine. He is also president and founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Neil Bernard. Thank you. In 2009... The Archives of Internal Medicine published a massive research study. The NIH AARP study had a half a million participants. They were followed for 10 years. Some of them didn't eat meat or didn't eat very much. Some ate quite a lot of meat. And what they showed was that among those eating the most meat, the risk of dying of cancer was increased by fully 20%, and heart disease deaths were increased by 27% among men and 50% among women. And studies have clearly shown that people who don't eat meat cut their cancer risk by anywhere between 12 and 40 percent. Well, why would meat be linked to cancer? Well, hold that thought for a second. Now, I got my first wake-up call at Fairview Hospital in Minneapolis, where I was the autopsy assistant. One day, a man died in the hospital of a massive heart attack. And the pathologist came in the room, and he knew that I was headed for medical school. So he removed a section of ribs, and he sliced open one of the coronary arteries, and he said, look inside. And it looked like chewing gum in this coronary artery. But when I felt it, it was hard like a rock. And he said, that's atherosclerosis. That's your morning sausage, Neil. That's your bacon, Neil. That's your roast beef. And he said, we see the beginnings of this in three-quarters of people by age 23, which happened to be the age I was at the time. A, little, a few years later, Dr. Dean Ornish brought in to a research study people who had atherosclerosis. They had narrowed arteries. He took the meat out of their diets. And something happened that had never been shown before. The arteries actually started opening up again, so much that you could see a measurable difference in 82% of patients in the first year with no surgery and no medications. So my research team tried this same kind of diet for people who wanted to lose weight. And NIH funded us to try this kind of diet for people who had diabetes. And it works better than any other diet. Why? Because getting the meat out of the diet helps fat to drain out of the muscle cells, allowing insulin to start working on its own. And when we look at broad population studies, the meat eaters are always the heaviest group, and the people who eat no meat are always the thinnest. Diabetes is the same way. It's about 8% of adult meat eaters, and among vegetarians, 3%. High blood pressure, exactly the same. You just don't see it very much in people following vegetarian diets. But why more cancer? Well, when we heat up meat, something happens that doesn't happen with plant foods, and that's that carcinogens called heterocyclic amines form in the meat. 
But that's not the only carcinogen. We also see polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. There is heme iron. There are a lot of things. Plus, meat doesn't have fiber that protects you. It doesn't have any vitamin C. It's low in important antioxidants. So it's like tobacco. We know for sure tobacco causes lung cancer, but we're not 100% sure which part of the tobacco smoke is responsible. We know clearly that meat causes cancer in other parts of your body, but we're not sure. Is it the HCAs, the PAHs? We're not quite sure yet. And meat eaters actually have very poor nutrition. Yes, they get protein, but they don't get many vitamins. They don't get any complex carbohydrates. They're missing fiber. A vegetarian diet gives you all the protein you're going to need, plus many more vitamins, many more uh, minerals. Since 2004, meat-eating has dropped by 9%. That's where we're going. That's the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Neil Bernard. Our motion is, don't eat anything with a face. And now our first debater to speak against the motion, Chris Masterjohn is a researcher at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where he studies interactions between fat-soluble vitamins A, D, and K. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Masterjohn. I'd like to begin by telling you a personal story. When I was 18, I became a vegetarian because I believed that this would be the most healthful, ethical, and ecologically conscious dietary choice I could make. Six months later, I became a vegan, meaning I excluded all animal products from my diet. A year and a half down the road, many pre-existing health problems that had mostly been a nuisance to me in the past devolved into burdens that crippled my day-to-day function. My digestion worsened, my energy tanked, and my irritability skyrocketed. In a single dental examination, I found out that I had over a dozen cavities and needed two root canals. Worst of all, my anxiety disorders aggravated to the point that I had several panic attacks per week. But then I encountered the work of Weston Price, which really changed my life. Weston Price was the first research director for what became the American Dental Association and was a pioneer in nutritional and medical anthropology. He documented all over the globe in different climates, in different altitudes and latitudes, in groups with radically different cultural and genetic backgrounds, the consistent effects of the nutritional transition from traditional diets to what he called the displacing foods of modern commerce, white flour, white sugar, white rice, vegetable oils, and canned goods. In every case, the transition was one from radiant and vibrant health to not only tooth decay and dental deformities, but often to tuberculosis, cancer, appendicitis, cystitis, gallbladder disease, physical degeneration of all kinds. All of the groups that successfully maintained vibrant health on their traditional diets placed special emphasis on the need for animal products rich in fat-soluble vitamins. Price went on to provide laboratory and clinical evidence that the emphasis on these foods was in fact a critical reason for the success of these traditional diets. After reading Price's work, I began emphasizing high-quality, nutrient-dense animal foods in my own diet, and within months, my anxiety disorders completely disappeared and my tooth decay came to a crashing halt. Indeed, my mental and physical health had undergone a revolution. The scientific literature shows that I'm not alone. Seven out of eight relevant studies found that compared to omnivores, vegetarians have a greater risk of mental disorders, including eating disorders, depression, poor self-esteem, anxiety, and contemplated or attempted suicide. A study published in 2010 found that compared to omnivores, vegans had eight times more lesions involving poor mineralization of the teeth. Why might this be? 
Well, simply put, many nutrients are much easier to get from animal products than from plant products. Dr. Bernard himself has published scientific papers showing that although his diet leads to increased intakes of many nutrients, primarily from fruits and vegetables, it also leads to decreased intakes of vitamin B12, vitamin D, and selenium, and fails to guarantee an adequate intake of zinc. It is unlikely that supplementing our way out of these nutrient deficiencies, moreover, will be a complete success because all of these nutrients have very complex interactions with the other components present in the foods in which we find them. In order to construct an optimal dietary approach that is robust to error and adaptable to individual needs, we need to abandon the false dichotomy between healthy plant foods and supposedly unhealthy animal foods and instead embrace the health value of high-quality nutrient-dense foods of all types. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. And here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, don't eat anything with a face. You have heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. We're going to bring to the lectern Gene Bauer. He is president and co-founder of the Farm Sanctuary, the nation's largest farm animal rescue and protection organization. Ladies and gentlemen, Gene Bauer. I grew up eating animals without really thinking about it. Everybody around me was doing it, so I just adopted the habit. But as I started learning of how these animals were treated and about the fact that I could live well without eating animals, I made the choice to become a vegan. I did that back in 1985. It's one of the best choices I've ever made. And the fact that we can live well without eating other animals, without causing harm, I think is the key question here, the key point. If we can live well without causing harm, why wouldn't we do it? So the question is, how do we want to feel when we treat other animals the way we treat them? And on these factory farms are treated horribly. I visited farms across the country. I've seen animals put in these small cages where they can't move. They're living in their feces. Um, They're screaming to get out of their cages. And they live that way their whole lives. You know, when people see this, they don't like it. And oftentimes people say, don't tell me I don't want to know when the issue of factory farming comes up because it is so upsetting. And because we are compassionate and because we are hardwired to have empathy, when we look at other animals and we see them suffer, when we look at other people and we see them suffer, we feel something. That is one of the best parts of our humanity, this empathy, this ability to feel something when we look into somebody else's face. And when you abuse another animal or another person for that matter, there's this tendency to try to denigrate them and to say, well, they don't really have feelings. They don't really deserve any better. And that's unfortunately what has happened to farm animals. There are these misconceptions and and incorrect ideas about animals on farms not being smart. For instance, people think turkeys are so dumb they'll go outside and they'll drown in the rain. This is one of these myths that people say probably to feel better about mistreating animals. Uh, We had a turkey at our farm in California we used to call Lydia the hugging turkey because you'd go out into the barnyard and kneel down and she would come up to you and she would crane her neck around your neck like she was giving you a hug. So these animals show companionship and friendship. Um, And I'm not the only one that has seen this. People who visit Farm Sanctuary and work there have seen this. Jane Goodall also is now speaking out about the fact that these animals have feelings and, and much more intellectual and emotional depth than we ever knew before. She said, farm animals feel pleasure and sadness, excitement and resentment, depression, fear, and pain. They are far more aware and intelligent than we ever imagined. They are individuals in their own right. 
Now, on factory farms, these animals are treated horribly. I think there's widespread support among this panel, even among those who think that it's okay to eat animals, that factory farming is an abomination. The real challenge is discussing what about animals who are not treated so badly? Should we eat them? And I would suggest, no, we should not. We do not need to. We do not need to cause them harm. I've been to factory farms. I have been to small farms. And even on these farms that are purported to be humane, there are significant problems. Whenever the animals are seen as consumables, the relationship is one of exploitation, and that is a huge problem that we need to face. In addition, animal production is very wasteful. The United Nations came out with a report a couple of years ago talking about how animal agriculture is one of the top contributors to the most serious environmental problems we're facing on the planet, including climate change. So eating animals is bad for the animals, it's bad for the environment, it is bad for us. We can live and be healthy on eating plants alone. I urge you to vote yes on the motion that we should not eat anything with a face. So thank you very much. Thank you, Gene Bauer. And that's our motion, don't eat anything with a face. And here to argue against this motion, Joel Salatin. He is a full-time farmer in Virginia's uh, Shenandoah Valley and the author of eight books. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joel Salatin. Chris and I have some overarching positions. Number one. Affirmative studies, affirmative studies impugning animal farming or omnivorous nutrition must be based on pasture-based data, not chemical, pharmaceutical, concentrated animal feeding operations like CAFOs. Chris and I categorically reject any and all CAFOs, chemical fertilization, aquifer irrigation, and genetic modification as being necessary or meritorious in food production. Factory food has no merit in this debate, and none of the studies will hold water if they use factory food, and you'll find that they all do. Number two, plants are sentient beings. They attack, communicate, and build communities. Their language is chemical. Plants have faces, even though we might not recognize them. Number three, domestic livestock are owned by 60% of the world's poor primarily because they represent portable wealth to the unlanded poor and nutrition density protected from spoilage and vermin. The affirmative position is a direct attack on the world's poor. Number four, life requires death. The fact that all of us can come to this luxurious room, comfortable and well-fed, and entertain ourselves by debating whether we should viscerally and actively participate in our role on an ecological continuum is bizarre. (laughs) Native Americans ate 10 pounds of buffalo a day when they could get it. And plenty of starving children in the world would be grateful for a morsel of anything, whether it wiggles or not. Number five. Humans are the ultimate caretaker species, and the notion that my dog is my uncle, is my cat, is my child, does not indicate an evolutionary newfound state of heightened spiritual cosmic awareness, but rather a profound devolution into ignorance and disconnection to our ecological umbilical. Number six, killing and eating are interchangeable. If it is wrong to eat, then it's wrong to kill. Killing without eating is an insult to life and resource. Number seven, Environmental integrity demands certain patterns, whether we like them or not. 
In case you missed this in biology class, here's how it works. Sunlight converts to biomass through photosynthesis. The biomass grows slowly at first, then rapidly, then grows into senescence. The herbivore prunes the senescence biomass back to restart the rapid growth cycle. Predation, both carnivorous and otherwise, like weather or fire, creates movement patterns, even intensifying herbivores into mobs. All fertile soils have been built with perennials, herbivores, and predators, not tillage and annuals like wheat and corn. Every single nook and cranny on the planet is full of animals. Why? Because they convert biomass into soil. From kitchen scraps fed to the homestead chickens to caribou converting lichens to manure, animals create ecological integrity. Humans can't eat most biomass. The few types we can, like vegetables, require extremely fertile soil. Not one single organic vegetable or produce regimen exists that doesn't rely on animal or fish manures for fertility. The principle of life requiring death or sacrifice is a most profound spiritual and ecological truth. How we treat the plant and animal in life imparts sacredness to the sacrifice. Alan Savory's eloquent TED Talk explains proper animal management is the best hope for stopping climate change and desertification. So vote for ecological integrity and nutritional superiority that we should eat both plants and animals. In case you forgot, it's the negative position in this debate. Thank you, Joel Salatin. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is don't eat anything with a face. And now we move on to round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. This is our motion. Don't eat anything with a face. Now, we've seen several strains of argument here, practical, health, and ethical. And I'd like to explore all of them. I want to stipulate that it's clear that these debaters do agree about one thing. No no one on this stage is in favor or arguing to justify factory farming. What they are disagreeing about is whether it is right to kill an animal for food or not. So we want to be focusing on that aspect of this, and on that there is a strong disagreement among them. What I want to do is take to the side that's arguing for the motion, don't eat anything with a face, who opened with the health argument that meat makes you sick, that this is well documented. And we heard the personal testimonial of Neil Bernard as a young medical student, uh, seeing that for himself firsthand with patients that he was treating. And bring to you, uh, Neil, your opponent, Chris Masterjohn's testimony to the opposite. He went on a vegan diet, got really, really sick from it, and he went back to meat because his argument is that's where the nutrients are. Neil Bernard. Well, the studies that he cited were observational studies. We have put this to the test. We worked with the insurance company, Geico, in 10 different cities, and we introduced plant-based diets for, for about 300 people, and we measured levels of depression, levels of anxiety. They got better. And as, as people who have done this, they, they find they feel more energetic, which is why a lot of athletes are doing it. Dental health acts exactly the same. In fact, even the study that he cited, when you looked over the longest period of time, the vegetarians kept their teeth more while the mediators tended to lose okay. them. This let's, is not a reason to have a soda. Let's let Chris respond. Chris, he was making the point the on the science, and I'd like you to respond on the science as well. Right. Well, Dr. Barnard is entirely correct, first of all, that uh, all of the studies that I cited about vegetarianism and mental disorders are observational studies, and they cannot show whether vegetarianism causes mental disorders, mental disorders cause vegetarianism. What we do know is that there's uh, a wealth of information about biochemistry and the effects of the specific nutrient deficiencies that can be most common in vegetarian diets that are all related 
to mental health. And so biologically, it's very plausible. But I would like to also make the point that Dr. Barnard cannot uh, have his low-fat, low-glycemic vegan chocolate cake and eat it too, because the studies that Dr. Barnard cited uh, at the beginning about the relationship uh, between uh, eating meat and cancer and coronary heart disease are also observational studies, and they also tell us absolutely nothing about cause-and-effect relationships. And well, l- let me take sure. issue with you there, if you don't mind. No, I am no, no. going to suggest that, Joel, if I went to your farm and I got one of your chickens, who maybe never had even a, any chemical given to, the, to the, that chicken, but if I killed them and cooked them, these same heterocyclic amines, these clear-cut carcinogens, would form on your chickens just like any other. So regardless of whether, of whether it's organic or not, cooking skeletal muscle produces carcinogens. And that's why every epidemiologist agrees that vegetarians have less cancer. Jill Salatin? Well, if you're trying to uh, create cancer out of something, an excess of anything, can, you, know, you can drink too much water and get sick. You know, in Argentina, their per capita consumption of red meat is double what it is in the U.S. In Argentina, the average person eats half a pound a day of red meat, and their cancer rate is half of the U.S. Why? Because it's grass-finished beef. And so there is a huge difference in the nutritional profile. I mean, you know, there are carcinogens in virtually all foods. And, and, I, and Neil or, or Gene, um, the, the argument that your opponents are making as well that meat is just really damn nutritious... And if you want B12 in your diet, which is vital, you're not going to get it without eating meat unless you take supplements. Gene, do you want to take that? Yeah, well, I, I've been Bauer. a vegan since 1985, and I have not been very religious about taking B12 supplements, uh, but I get everything I get from plant sources. So the B12 I get is from plant sources. B12 is the only nutrient that you need to think about, and that's made by microorganisms. So it's available in the environment. It's available in the soil. Otherwise, you get so you everything you need. soil? There's soil on vegetables, I, isn't there? I, yeah. I, I think don't that, sanitize and don't zap it. Vitamin, Neil B, Bernard. vitamin B12 is not made by animals. It's not made by plants. It is made by bacteria. The theory, one theory is that the bacteria on plants, on the soil, on our fingers, in our mouths, give you that 2.4 micrograms, that tiny amount that you need. And people have shown that the bacteria in the human digestive tract actually produce absorbable B12, but in modern civilization, most of those bacteria are gone. They're too low. They're, they produce the B12, so you can't absorb it. The truth is, nobody really knows for sure. But what we do know is that most B12 people in hematology clinics are meat-eaters, and they are low in B12 because they are not absorbing it. It's hard to absorb B12 from meat. You need good stomach acid. You need intrinsic factor. And the U.S. government recommends that all meat eaters over the age of 50 take B12 supplements because otherwise okay. they I, are Chris deficient. The, 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 pro, the problem is that, that, that all of your meat studies are based on toxin-laden meat that's been raised in a factory farming situation. If you, if you take that out of it, the nutrition and the analysis is, is completely different. But I want to go to Gene Bauer because you're, you're, where you really stood out in your opening statement was making this, uh, really, really making the strong statement, a humanity towards animals. You have rescued farm animals and, and, and arranged for them to have a good long life, not ending up on somebody's plate. And one of your opponents, Joe Salatin, who raises uh, animals in an organic uh, system, um, basically made the argument that um, eating and being eaten is part of life and that uh, history, evolution, 
reality in most of the rest of the world is you've got to eat meat, and there's nothing wrong with that. Take that on. Well, I think over the course of our history, we've done what we've had to do to survive, and often that has been eating meat. We've also done a lot of things over the course of our history that have not been very good. You know, you know, you think of institutions like slavery. And as time goes, we come to look at these things more critically, and we start making decisions and choices that are, I think, more humane. And when it comes to animals, they have feelings like we do. They're not that much different than we are. And there's been attempts to rationalize and say, well, they are different. They don't use tools, for example. Then Jane Goodall found that animals were using tools, and we had to change our thinking and say, well, they don't use language. But now we see that these other animals use language. As we learn, you know, I think our responsibility grows, and the fact is we can choose not to eat other animals. In the case of a lion, they don't have a choice. In the case of us, we do have a choice. Gene, where where do you go on the evolutionary scale and putting uh, ourselves fairly high up and putting insects fairly low down. I mean, would you swat a mosquito? Would you trap a rat? To me, it's about not causing unnecessary suffering. And, you know, there's a difference between dying and being murdered. Even people like E.B. White wrote about this, you know, who wrote Charlotte's Web. He said, a farm is a peculiar problem for a man who likes animals because the fate of most livestock is that they are murdered by their benefactors. The creatures may live serenely, but they end violently, and the odor of doom hangs about them always. So there's, it's about our relationship with other animals. Is it about compassion and kindness, or is it about cruelty okay. and exploitation and killing? Let's go to the farmer on the other side who's arguing against the motion, Joel Salatin. You know, I don't have any problem with uh, vegans. I really don't. Uh, they become our best customers when they find out they can get healthy with our meat. But... Um, <laughs> Where I really get my dander up is when I'm accused of saying you can't love because you dress animals. That's a powerful Did you statement. say dress animals? Dress is a euphemism for slaughter. It just sounds nicer on the radio. It sure did. <laughs> I was picturing a tutu and a little hat. <laughs> I'm glad it I caught like that one. It means like you dress them for the table. You know, nobody wants a live chicken on their okay. dining room table. You know, you want it dressed. Okay. You want it... Um, in our Thanksgiving, we have live turkeys, actually. We feed them. We don't eat them. So. No, but let Joel. Joel Salatin, floor is yours. Yeah, so, so the, the, the problem becomes, you know, it's, it's nice to sit here and say, we're going to rescue all these animals. The problem is that it just doesn't work. How are you going to fertilize the vegetables that you're eating? Well, there's actually veganic farms, including one right across the street from us that grows produce without any animal inputs. And there's another veganic farmer I know of in the UK that's been in business for 37 years, and there's several of them that are starting to now develop around the country. So this type of agriculture is possible, and it is a growing area. It's possible on soils that that have been built by manures. No, green manure. You know, you can grow, you know, hay and things like that. Cover crops can be used. And okay, so people how, doing much this for acreage, how much extra acreage is it going to take to farm that way? Well, you need it's to do rotation. It's going to take about three or four times, maybe five times the amount of acreage we're currently using. Well, if we're not having to grow a lot of crops to feed a lot of livestock, we'll have enough land for that. Well, we... We don't, well, I, I, don't think I already showed you we, don't have, to, we right. don't have to grow the crops to feed the livestock because there's that much uh, scavenging and, and, and that sort of thing going on. The, the problem is that we're not using animals in their historically normal role, which is as scavengers. If every household had a couple of chickens to eat their vegetable scraps, there wouldn't even be a factory farm chicken industry. That you wouldn't even have to put the garbage on a garbage truck to send it to a composting facility uh, yeah. to go onto your you know, ornamental uh, flower beds. Well, I'm not uh, against you know, somebody having 
having chickens that they feed their scraps. But then where I have the issue, though, is when somebody goes up and then cuts off their head. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. We have four panelists, two teams of two, arguing this motion. Don't eat anything with a face. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, Don't Eat Anything with a Face. Sir. Uh, The motion is don't eat anything with a face, and one thing which may have slipped through the cracks is fish, which has a face as well, and we haven't really... I got an email from a friend saying, could you please change the motion to don't eat anything with an ass? (laughs) Because he he wants to eat fish. Joel Salatin, you were talking about populations that live near the water. That's where they go. Well, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I find it fascinating that all of the attributes given to animals, plants have too. Uh, the DNA structure of grasses, for example, when you introduce a species, it nativizes its DNA structure to become more climatically nativized to a certain place. That's memory. That's genetic memory and adaptation to a certain place. If that isn't responding to things, I don't know what is. And, and, the, and, and I, I just... I just absolutely don't appreciate this false dichotomy that when I take the life of a carrot, the carrot doesn't scream. And it doesn't have a central nervous question, system. You're good with the fish. I'm eating. absolutely good with the fish. But, but I will say this. I only eat fish when I'm on the coast. I don't eat fish in Oklahoma City. We skipped over the health issues. Let me just 30 seconds on this. When we look at fish eaters and compare them to meat eaters, they are marginally slimmer than people who eat heavy amounts of meat, but they are nowhere near as slim as the vegetarians. The fish eaters as a group have more diabetes. Carcinogens form in cooked salmon just like in cooked chicken. And uh, there's nothing like getting the skeletal muscle out of your diet. And fish also have a central nervous system in brains. And Chris Masterjohn, you wanted to add? Joel and I essentially agree on this, so I'm not going to add too much. But I I do think one of the things that the other side uh, needs to articulate is a a way to approach this harm reduction in a way that is economically and ecologically sustainable. So one of the things that I wonder, and this could be taken as an open-ended question, definitely not a criticism, if we are to say we should have a a world without animal farming – What does that post-animal farming world look like? For example, on your farm sanctuary, you you sterilize the male mammals and make sure that you don't have any reproduction. So we're exercising some responsibility in minimizing harm to those animals by keeping the population size down. So when we shift to a post-animal farming world, do we move towards eradication of the domesticated farm species or do we have something like your sanctuary on a larger scale? Okay, and if ba- it's a larger scale, how is it economically sustained? Gene well, Bauer. Well, as I mentioned, there are some veganic farms now that are forming, and I think that's a very good model. Um, I think it's also important to recognize that all species of farm animals, with the exception of the turkey, have been imported into the U.S. Cattle, for example, are now ranging where bison used to range. And so I think bison should be back there. And... Um, When we're growing plants and eating them directly, it requires far less acreage. So a lot of wild space could be left wild. And veganic farming is is not necessarily no animals. There are wild animals, and you're interacting with animals, but in a a less harmful way. So I think there's some good signs. I 
I would disagree vehemently with the fact that it takes more area to grow this food this way. That, again, is coming straight out of the United Nations, and these are, these are um, studies paid for by the industrial Wait food system, w- w- which when is When I assuming- go back to Fargo and I see acre after acre, as far as the eye can see, of corn and soybeans, and not one ear of that corn is going to be eaten by a human being. I know. All and, and, of the and, irrigation, yeah, all the pesticides. You know what? If all that land were growing prairie under intensive grazing management... It would be building soil, bringing springs back, replacing the aquifers, and growing far more nutrition per acre than corn and soybeans. But as Gene See, said, you could let it assuming, go wild. You're assuming an inappropriate model. You're looking at this saying, you know, most marriages are dysfunctional, so I'm not going to participate in marriage. We don't solve problems by just walking away from the issue. We embrace it, we participate it, and offer an alternative. You know, you also speak about dominion. That's the truth. You know, we, we have dominion, as you mentioned, and we, have a, a, we can play a role and either be kind or kill. So, and there are ways to grow food with plants without, without using animals. There's veganic agriculture. It is coming. Sir. Thank you, guys. Uh, I'd like to frame this, the, the health aspect of this debate. You guys touched upon this a little bit. What role has animal protein played in the evolutionary success of Homo sapiens, and what proof of that, if any, is left over in today's modern humans? Go ahead. Try it, Try it um, Chris. Sure. John. I, I just want to make two really quick points. Worth pointing out that chimpanzees, according to Dr. Craig uh, Stanford, whose expertise in that area, eat uh, 50 to 100 grams of meat per day. They hunt it and they use it as a commodity to trade it for food and sex and also for their sustenance. But on evolution, I think the lesson that evolution gives us is that there's variation in the population. That variation changes over time. And so I'm not arguing that no one can be uh, healthy on a vegan diet but the, the point is the motion doesn't say some people should not eat anything without a face. It says don't eat anything without a face. And what we see is that there are genetic variations where not everyone can get the nutrients from plant foods as well as other people. Some people will do well. Some people won't. That's the lesson from evolution is that variation. Okay. And, Sarah, I'll come down to you. Uh, my name is Paul Sprouse. Um, meat is inexpensive, And I wonder what those in favor of the motion would say to those who cannot financially afford a meat-free diet. Meat is very expensive. You have to raise the the corn or whatever that you're feeding them. You have to irrigate. You have to do all these things. You feed it to the the animal. The reason it's cheap at the store is that your tax dollars are going to subsidize the feed grains. And if if those subsidies were ended suddenly, a burger, the price of a burger would be through the roof. Dried beans are cost pennies. Yes. Uh, my question is for the side arguing for the motion. Um, you cite meat eating as a major health hazard, but isn't it a question about uh, balance and moderation? Excessive amount of vitamins can, can be harmful to one's health as well. So isn't it about balance and moderation? Well, the fact is that you know we can't live without eating animals. Um, and if you eat some animal products, it probably won't kill you, but it will kill the animal. And, and that's a, a key issue here. Um, you know, but, you know, with factory farming, to, to the point that was raised earlier, most people in this country who are eating animals are eating factory farmed animals. So that should be, I think, a very strong point for voting for the measure why we should not eat anything with a face because almost everything with a face is coming from a factory farm. But, Gene, how would it change things if the world were Joe Salatin's world everywhere for you? There is still a relationship there with animals that is violent, 
and bloody, and it's unnecessary. How, I mean, many, I, how many animals? How many animals do you kill when you plant a tomato? Plant a tomato? Not that many. I mean, a tomato a plant's pretty easy every, to plant. Every every meter of soil, every tablespoon of soil, every tablespoon has a million living organisms that are communicating, reacting, creating DNA memories. You but know, they don't have a face. They're, they're probably, they don't have a face. You don't think they have a face. I don't think they Why? do. I've not what? seen it. Just because it's not a face like you... Why is it no less important? Only things that look like you are more important? You know, that's... No, that's, no, I think... No, I think that it's good to be respectful Gene, to Gene, all. Gene, I'm sorry that I interrupted you because I, I didn't mean to talk over you. I'd love to hear your answer to that question. It's about being respectful to others. And there are lots of little bugs that live in the world and live in our bellies even that we interact with without a, an intentional harm being caused. And that is a difference between planting a tomato plant and going and slitting the throat of a chicken. Pam? Thank you. This is really interesting. I'm, my name is Rosa Montan. I'm a Swedish journalist over for two weeks to improve my English. And this is great. <laughs> uh, I just want to uh, change focus a little bit because we're talking a lot about ethics and farm animals. And I come from an area in Sweden where we hunt a lot of moose, roe deer, wild boar, etc., etc. Uh, I know that a lot of hunters, they think they're doing an ethical job, keeping down the numbers of animals. How do you look upon that? Is it more justified to kill wild animals like moose through hunting? Yeah. I, I, I think it's really all about the relationship. You know? And in this country, the deer populations are actually managed so we can have people go out and kill them. So the hunting is actually used as an excuse to go kill We've removed all the, the natural predators. So I'm in favor of a more natural ecosystem and then for human beings to interact in a humane way. Other side like to respond to that? I, I would just Chris like Master to John. say, I guess, isn't this a, a matter of the, the directness of our complicity rather than our complicity? So if we move towards a world that has more wild animals with more predators, I, I know on, there, there are issues with humane slaughtering now, but those animals will um, suffer the same fate of factory-farmed animals where they can get ripped apart where they're still alive. You still have those animals dying so aren't we just removing our directness in the complicity rather than our actual complicity? And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. Here to summarize his position against our motion, don't eat anything with a face. He's against this motion. Chris Masterjohn, a nutritional sciences researcher and author of the blog, The Daily Lipid. Large-scale epidemiological evidence uh, that has been recently published shows that vegetarians who shop at health food stores or are otherwise health conscious have no benefit over meat eaters who shop at health food stores or are otherwise health conscious. And this tells us nothing about causation because it's a correlation. What this means is that science is very complex. So I'd, I'd like to offer a way to synthesize the information in a way that embraces the uncertainty as a source not of frustration and confusion but of empowerment. We should take as our baseline the spectrum of traditional diets associated with population-wide freedom from degenerative disease, where even the most vulnerable members of the population were protected. These diets all lacked refined foods and all contained nutrient-dense animal foods, regardless of whether they ate a little or a lot. We should build on this with our scientific understanding of physiology, which shows that animal foods provide nutrition and that dietary needs vary from one individual to another and it may in the same individual vary from one period of life to another. 
The motion tonight fails to prevent the death and suffering of animals in an ecologically and economically sustainable way. Because its particular form of absolutism is so lopsided, it's even more harmful than the converse proposition to always eat something with a face. So I urge you to vote against it. Thank you, Chris Master John. And that is our motion, don't eat anything with a face. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Neil Bernard, a clinical researcher and president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. If your teenage son or daughter were to say to you, Mom, Dad, I made up my mind. I'm going to eat my fruits and vegetables, and I'm going to have veggie burgers and things, but I'm just not going to eat anything with a face. Uh, Don't worry. I know how to do it. I know where to get my protein. If you then looked at the numbers and you realized that your child's risk of becoming obese or having a heart attack or developing cancer just plummeted, you would be thrilled. The world's strongest man is Patrick Baboumian, who recently lifted 1,210 pounds on an entirely plant-based diet. The world's greatest ultra-long-distance runner is Scott Jurek. He runs 100 miles, 125 miles, 150 miles at one stretch faster than any living human being on an entirely plant-based diet, and arguably the world's greatest brain. Albert Einstein wrote some words I want to share with you. It's my view that the vegetarian manner of living by its purely physical effect on the human temperament would most beneficially influence the lot of mankind. And Einstein continued, So I am living without fats, without meat, without fish, and I'm feeling quite well this way. It always seems to me that man was not born to be a carnivore. A generation ago, we tackled tobacco, and while everybody is free to smoke, we just know that we're not going to do it. And today the issue is food. For yourself, but most importantly for that animal who is your child, this resolution makes the most health sense. Don't eat anything with a face. Thank you, Neil Bernard. Again, that is our motion, don't eat anything with a face. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Joel Salatin. He's a third-generation alternative farmer in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. You know, it's fascinating how you can just uh, kind of trade study for study for study, and that's, I think, what's happened tonight. The fact is that science is subjective based on the prejudice of the researchers. They set up the experiments this way. And so you've got to look at who finances them, where the money goes, and um, decide what to do. That's how Monsanto got the you know, GMOs through. They used geriatric rats when the same experiments were repeated in Scotland with juvenile rats. All sorts of problems came up with GMOs. So I kind of I go philosophical on this. You know, we, we, we can trade dead bodies and thin people and heart attacks all night, all right? The anatomy of a human is predacious. Our eyes are in the front of our heads. We have incisors. We're not built like prey. We are predators. And remember, there are no exceptions in this topic. So remember my initial point about the poor and why 60% of the world keeps livestock because it's portable wealth for the landed poor and it's real-time nutrition for those who can't afford the high fertility soil necessary to grow kale. This motion, when you vote for the motion, is an unbelievable disrespect and dishonor of this world's poor people who rely on real-time livestock for nutrition and survival. So, Joel Salatin, I'm I'm sorry your time is up. Thank you very much. And vote against the motion. And our motion is don't eat anything with a face. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Gene Bauer, the president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary. 
Voting for this measure is voting for sustainability. It requires far fewer resources to grow plant foods as opposed to animal foods. It is the way people with, lot, with few resources have eaten for thousands and thousands of years. Our massive animal-consuming lifestyle is fairly recent. And going more philosophically... This is ultimately about our relationship with other animals. Historically, humans have eaten other animals. In tough times, people have eaten other people. We've done a lot of very bad things, but when we have choices, when we have options, when we can live in a way that does not cause harm, why wouldn't we? And when you try to rationalize that these animals are there to be killed and eaten by us, many other bad things do happen. When the animals are seen as commodities and as edibles, they are not treated with respect. That is bad for the animals, and I would also suggest it is bad for us. If you vote yes on this, that doesn't mean you've got to be vegan tomorrow. This is a principle that we should not eat anything with a face. These are other animals. They have feelings just like our cats and dogs. They deserve to be treated with respect. Please vote yes on the motion. Thank you, Gene Bauer. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued the best. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypads at your seat to register your vote on this motion. Don't eat anything with a face. Before that happens, um, one thing I'd like to do, first of all, is to ask all of you to show your appreciation for four debaters who took this into really interesting areas. And one other thing, I only wanted to mention this after the vote was in because I wasn't sure how, if at all, it might sway your vote. Uh, But Joel Salatin's necktie, it looks like just polka dots to you. Those are all little piggies. (laughs) but it can't change anything now. Because the results are all in. You have now heard the arguments. You have voted twice, once before the arguments, and once after. The team that has changed the most minds and percentage points, Herms, will be declared our winner. So here are the results. The motion, don't eat anything with a face. Before the debate, 24% agreed with this motion. 51% were against, and 25% were undecided. So those are the first results. Remember, you have to have moved your uh, number in percentage point terms by the most in order to win. So on to the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 45%. They went from 24% to 45%. That means they've picked up 21 percentage points. That is the number to beat. Let's see the team against the motion. Their first vote was 51%. Their second vote was 43%. They lost eight percentage points. That means the team arguing for the motion, don't eat anything with a face, is our winner. Our congratulations to them. And thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.